Well, good afternoon to all of you. It certainly is a pleasure to be here, and I bring you greetings from well over 600 brethren in Canada. Uh, we have about 585 in attendance this past uh, September, average attendance, but we certainly have more than that in the church there in Canada, somewhere around 650, 680. We see good growth taking place there, and I wanted to give you a little bit of information about the Canadian work. Today we have uh, 30 congregations across Canada spanning five and a half time zones. It, they, these churches are served by 11 ministers, four of which are full-time in the work on salary and two are part-time salaried with five that are, I don't want to say unemployed, they, some of them are employed but not by the church. They have other jobs to go to or perhaps they are retired. We do have some real challenges in Canada. Uh, currently, uh, we have uh, Mr. Best, who had gone through a very serious uh, heart situation, a quintuple bypass surgery that, uh, frankly, it was a miracle that he did survive the condition that he was in. And he has been moved back to the Maritimes. That means Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and uh, Newfoundland, Labrador. Uh, he will be serving those areas, not exactly a small assignment for him, but uh, that left Saskatchewan and Manitoba, uh, two of the largest provinces there, without a resident minister. So they will be served from our Toronto office. Uh, Mr. Ellertson and I will be traveling back to those areas. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Canada, I should mention that the last three years I had the opportunity... I guess we can call it that. Uh, Mr. Pyle had the opportunity to join me on one of those trips to go back to Regina, where we had a call center that we no longer use, but we went back there in February. He joined me on one of the trips, and I should report that this uh, past February was a, a heat wave. It was uh, 17 degrees Celsius, uh, which... Uh, of course, I, what we'd never mentioned back there is that means below. It's 17 below Celsius. That was a heat wave because the two previous years, the wind chills were between 50 or 40 and 56 degrees below zero. Uh, that was Celsius, but uh, 40 and 40, it's whether it's Celsius 40 or Celsius uh, Fahrenheit, it's the same thing. So you can imagine what it's like back there. Uh, they do get cold occasionally, but it does get warm as well. Some people think that people live in Eskimo, I mean, not Eskimos, igloos up there, and that's not necessarily so. I mean, there may be a few someplace, but uh, most people live in houses like we do here. And we invite all of you to come join us for the feast up there or any other occasion that we have, uh, have occasion to, uh, to be there. I think you'll find it uh, very good and you'll find the brethren warm, friendly, and loving. And I think that when Mr. Ames was up there just a short time ago, he found it that way. I think he called it the hugging church because uh, we have a lot of people from other parts of the world where that is their culture. They like to hug a lot. And we have uh, in the Toronto area people from all over the world. In Ontario, which is the most populous province, one out of three people was not born in Canada. And in all of Canada, one out of five was not born there. So we have a very multicultural society, especially in the large cities such as Toronto. And that makes for some 
interesting challenges as well as some wonderful opportunities. And one thing that you will learn is that we have, with God's Spirit, we have wonderful, wonderful brethren from all parts of this world. And it really brings home the conditions that some of them have to live in back home so that when you hear of a disaster, whether it be in the Philippines or whether it be in uh, Sri Lanka or someplace else, it reminds you that those are real people, genuine people over there, and some of them have relatives in the church over here. We do have a number of stations. The telecast is on. Uh, We have Vision Television, which shows the telecast eight times during the week. Grace Network, which shows the program at least four times because they tend to throw in a few freebies here and there. Uh, Three of the four are freebies already, but then they occasionally throw in another one from time to time. The Global Network, which is a secular station that serves the maritime provinces of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island, is a, a real good station for us because, again, it's a secular station, and we're able to be on at a very good time of 8.30 a.m. Sunday morning. I say that's a very good time because in Canada there are things called uh, Canadian content laws to try to preserve the culture of Canada and not have it totally overwhelmed by this monster to the south uh, called the United States. And so we, uh, we have these Canadian content laws which block us out of good times on most stations. But we are able to be on at 8.30 a.m. on this global network. That would be something like ABC, NBC, or CBS here, but it is limited to the Maritimes, that, that, uh, that part of the network. It goes all the way across the country, but we're limited there. <coughs> Excuse me. We're also on CHNU, which is... A, a secular uh, station there in the uh, Vancouver area. And tomorrow morning, we're going on a new station. We hope it'll work out. It's called Czech News. It's, it covers all of Victoria Island and also the Vancouver area and about 2 million others by satellite or cable. In fact, in the Toronto area, with basic cable, we can get uh, Czech News, which is draws a long way from uh, Vancouver Island. So we're hoping that that station will pay off for us. Something that we ask you to pray about, and that is that vision, which is our bread and butter, somewhere around 75, 80% of our calls, our responses come from vision, television, uh, is being sold. And the individual who's buying it uh, clearly has a different agenda than what the station has uh, has had in the past. Uh, My understanding is that he will honor... Canadian content religious broadcasting for three years. Now that is a little bit chilling because we do not have Canadian content, so it remains to be seen what will happen with our television program, but that would be a devastating blow to us there because it's not easy to just replace that. In fact, it's very, very difficult to find good television at good times because of Canadian content laws. So please remember to pray about that. We're probably good there for another four or five months, but at some point in time, when the sale goes all the way through, it's taking a time to do that, then we could find ourselves uh, on the outside on that particular station. So please remember that in your prayers. I'd like to explain a little bit more about Canadian culture, but I'll save that for the sermon here because uh, much of the information I have here applies directly to Canada. 
but it also applies to our world here in the United States and elsewhere in uh, the world, the Western world. Children like to play a game called dot to dot. That's where they have a, a piece of paper and they have little dots on it and they have numbers beside the dots and then the child is to take number one or maybe it starts with a star and then it goes to number one and draws a straight line to that that dot that is numbered one and then a straight line to number two number three four five and six and it goes all over the place and eventually you have a dog or a horse or a house or a tree or something like that sometimes you have to draw the quite a few dots before you figure out what it is that is being drawn there other times after you draw a few maybe you get to four or five or eight you already begin to see the picture of where this is going of course if you miss one of those dots and you connect them out of sequence you could have quite a mess well children like to play that game and i would imagine that many of us in this room play that game how many how many have ever played dot to dot Okay, that's just about everybody, most everybody. Uh, I see Dr. Meredith hasn't played dot-to-dot dot back there, so <laughs> he's too busy running, I think. Anyway, dot-to-dot, uh, dot, uh, wonderful game. I don't know. I didn't see Mr. Partian, whether he raised his hand or not. He may have, but uh, no. See, I think it's an age thing. They can't remember that far back. Uh, it's either that or they didn't have it back then. They didn't have paper back then when... no. I'm going to be in trouble here. <laughs> so I'll do what Dr. Meredith used to do when he would teach classes. He'd, he'd kind of get himself in a situation like I just did, and he'd try to explain his way out of it, and finally he'd just go. <laughs> but uh, we, we, always, we always loved when he would do that. So now that I've got my foot in my mouth, Dot to dot is, is more, or connecting the dots, is more than just an expression of a child's game. Uh, it is something that is being used more and more in our common uh, cultural language to mean connecting facts to see the picture. So today I'm going to paint a picture of where political correctness is leading this world, where it is heading, and see if we can decipher the big picture of where we are in today's world by connecting some of the dots. The book of Ezekiel in the fourth chapter makes an interesting statement here. As all of us who are old-timers know, the book of Ezekiel was written approximately 130 years after the house of Israel had gone into captivity. And yet, the book of Ezekiel is addressed to the house of Israel. Sometimes people get confused because it talks about Jerusalem, and we know that Jerusalem was not a part of the house of Israel. And we'll read a little bit more of Ezekiel a little bit later, but I'd like to address the fourth chapter, verse 1. He says, You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. So take a clay tablet portray the city of Jerusalem. Now, it's always important to know who the prophecy is addressed to, and it would appear on the surface that the prophecy would be addressed to Jerusalem alone. 
And certainly it did apply. What we have to understand is that Ezekiel was a captive among the Jews in Babylon. And part of Judah was still in existence. Jerusalem was still holding out. And so he was writing prophecies that applied to the city of Jerusalem at that time. But this passage tells us something very, very important. He says, lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it. Set the camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Now, many of us as children, as boys, I have to say, I'm sure that our ladies didn't do this, had little army men back. Now, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Today, they've got transformers, and they've got all kinds of things, and they've got video games and all that type of thing. But when I was young, we had these little green plastic army soldiers, and some of them would be laying down shooting, some would be standing up shooting, and others would have a bazooka and different things. And we used to have a friend and I would put them out there, and then we'd get rubber bands, and we'd try to knock over the other man's army and shoot them all down. And we would play army, as it were. Now, I guess boys will be boys because I noticed the latest video game that's coming out is some sort of a, I forget the name of it, uh, GI something or other or whatever, but it's, a, it's kind of a war game, similar type of thing. And that seems to be man's favorite sport. And God is going to rub our nose in it uh, to the point where we, uh, we no longer want it. But it's interesting because this is kind of what Ezekiel was doing. He was playing a little war game there had battering rams and all kinds of things around there, around the city of Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Wow. So while the city of Jerusalem is being besieged, that was a sign to the house of Israel. And so the prophecies that applied to Judah, to Jerusalem, in that the, the immediate context were to be signs or a message to the house of Israel, the ten tribes who had already been in captivity for 130 years. So when we get over to the ninth chapter of Ezekiel, we have to recognize that many of the things that are stated here in the book of Ezekiel apply very directly to the house of Israel as well as the house of Judah. And in this particular chapter, we find that it does apply to Jerusalem, certainly, but also to the house of Israel, as we've seen there. And we'll look at other scriptures that show that the book is for is the house of Israel as well. But let's start in Ezekiel 9, verse 1. It says, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen, and he had a rider's inkhorn at his side. And they went in and they stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of God, the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with the linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. 
And the Eternal said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. The men who would sigh and cry. This is not the mark of the beast, as we'll see. This is a mark that is a positive mark. He says, put a sign on those who sigh and cry for the abominations that are done within it. You know, some of the things that happen in the world today, we find ourselves at a loss to explain, to even discuss intelligently. Some things are so absolutely insane that all you can do is literally sigh and cry. They are such abominations. You cannot even intelligently talk about them. I'm going to show you a few of those things here a little bit later. But he says to the others, he said in my hearing, verse 5, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Begin at the, the sanctuary. Begin right there at the temple. At the very head there. He says, So they began with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. And I fell on my face and cried and said, Ah, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? You know, the slaughter that is eventually coming is not something that any of us want to see, want to be around. It's something that is coming on this world that is awful and terrible. And as Ezekiel watched this taking place in vision, he, he wondered, will anyone be left? Then he said to me, notice verse 9, the iniquity of the house of Israel. So this makes it very clear that when it speaks of Jerusalem, it's talking also to the house of Israel and Judah, the house of Israel and Judah, is exceedingly great. And the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. When we look at our world today, we see bloodshed everywhere. The murder rate in the United States is horrendous. I think New York City has gotten down from 2,000, now it's down to, what, four or 500 that they kill each year in murder, which is almost the entire... Uh, murder rate of Canada for a, a year, about 580, I think, I, I read recently. Uh, but right here in the United States, we have so many people that are slaughtered, killed uh, by other individuals, murdered. And we love bloodshed. We love it in our video games. We love it in television. Uh, we entertain ourselves with it. And it's all over this world. But he says the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. Perversity could be one of a number of things, but we'll just see some of that here in a few minutes. For they say the Eternal has forsaken the land, and the Eternal does not see. 
And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then the man clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. Now, let's look at some of the abominations that he speaks of here that we ought to be sighing and crying for because if we're not sighing and crying over these things, then we will not have that protective mark. Again, uh, some sort of a, a statement of a mark of a designation that we are those who sigh and cry for the abominations. I'd like to uh, just refer to an article I can't, I really honestly don't know how I could read it. Uh, this is one of Canada's top magazines, Maclean's. And uh, in, in this particular article, the uh, title is, You're Teaching Our Kids What? Or You're Teaching Our Kids What? You've got to be kidding. You're teaching them that? And what they're doing in Toronto now they are inviting these ladies from this adult uh, store, I think we understand what that means, to come in and teach sex education to our children. And the emphasis here, it says the latest buzzword in high school sex ed class is pleasure. Not everyone is pleased, of course. But they say we hear too much about diseases, we hear about all these things, so let's teach them about pleasure. And isn't that just absolutely wonderful that the person who is conducting this, uh, this adult bookstore brings in all kinds of gadgets and everything to teach children sex education? Now, that should be a really dandy education for our children, shouldn't it? I, I, I would like to read it, but honestly, there are words in there and statements that I, it, it just wouldn't be proper in this audience. But if you'd like to read it, I, I'll have it here. If you'd like to look at it later, you may do so. Um, you know, if that weren't bad enough, here's an article from Canada.com. You kind of have to, under, well, I'll get to it. Uh, but, but 2006, I'll, I'll read this part of it. The ministry... Uh, a guideline stemmed from a contract the government signed with gay activists Murray and Peter Corrin. Here were two gay activists who brought about a human rights uh, complaint, and the end result was that the government there in Vancouver, the authorities there, the Board of Education, made an agreement with them that if they dropped the human rights complaint, that they would give these two gay activists the right to review all curriculum in the Vancouver schools, Vancouver Public School District, and that they could therefore uh, make sure that whatever was written was, as they would call it, quote, gay-friendly. I don't particularly like to use that word. I think it demeans... Uh, a good word, but nevertheless, that's what they would call it. Now, the Vancouver Board of Education, well, let me read the title. It says, No Skipping Gay-Friendly Classes, Schools Tell Parents. 
The Vancouver Board of Education says it plans to enforce a ministry policy that prevents parents from pulling students out of classes that deal with alternative sexuality. Vancouver Board of Education says it plans to enforce a ministry policy that prevents parents from from pulling their students out of classes. Okay, I just read that. It says a recent staff recommendation from the Vancouver Board of Education says parents can pull their children out of sensitive lessons and health classes because of religious or family beliefs, but can't opt their children out of gay-friendly lessons and other classes. So if it is under the subject of health classes, they're able to pull them out, but not any other class where, quote, gay-friendly lessons are being taught. The recommendation released Friday sets out detailed guidelines and procedures the district intends to distribute to schools. This was June the 23rd of 2008. Uh, We're expected to do that by the education ministry, so it's not something we're Initiated, we've initiated of our own volition, said uh, Ken Denicky of the Vancouver School Board trustee. According to the ministry guidelines, ministry guidelines, students can only opt out of the health portion of health and career education K to seven. Uh, they're, they're getting right down to kindergarten class where they can teach this sort of thing, or health and career education eight and nine, and planning ten. But notice this, they aren't exempt from the lessons completed completely and must learn the material outside the classroom setting by home instruction or self-directed studies. So while they may opt out of the class, they still have to learn the curriculum. They also have to prove they've learned the material. In other words, they've got to show that they've been indoctrinated with this perverted lifestyle. You know, I can't even imagine that 40 years ago, even 20 years ago, that they could do such a thing as that. But that's part of what's happened when they have introduced this couple who launched a human rights case against the government. It ended the lawsuit by signing an agreement to add teachings about gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered issues to the provincial curriculum. It isn't just homosexual lesbians, but transsexuals, uh, bisexuals, the whole thing, and uh, the <laughs> Mark Stein, a very colorful writer, pointed out that this past year in Toronto at the uh, Pride Week that they have there, uh, he was introducing it with great fanfare, and he was having to list all these different types of folks, you know, bisexual, transsexual, transgender, all this type of thing. And he said the way that this is growing that in a few years the mayor will still be giving his introduction to all the different perverted lifestyles when the parade is over. Uh, it, it's just absolutely disgraceful. Uh, one of the speaking of Pride Week, here's another article: Toronto wins vote to host World Pride Bash. Toronto will host World Pride 2014 after winning a vote in Florida by leaders of gay and lesbian organizations around the globe. When it was finally announced that the city won a 78% margin of victory, meaning the festival will take place here, the crowd erupted in cheers, said Singh, who was delighted by the win. There's so much support and excitement for this, Singh told the Star, the Star.com or 
Star uh, paper. The world event will be hosted simultaneously with Toronto's Pride Week in the summer of 2014. The program for the festival includes a parade of nations as part of the opening ceremony and a human rights conference. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing. They, they claim this last year 1.3 million visitors to Toronto for uh, Pride Week. 1.3 million people. Uh, not just people who are of that lifestyle, but people just come out to see the show. And I understand it's quite a show. I mean, just looking at television, uh, they have to censor that somewhat. It uh, looks like quite a show, but uh, you hear that it's, uh, it is quite a show. You know what's interesting in Ezekiel, the 16th chapter? Ezekiel describes Israel and Judah. He talks about how he brought them out of Egypt, brought Israel out of Egypt, and of course then they became two nations. And in Ezekiel 16, verse 49, there is a word that just absolutely jumps off the Scriptures, out of the Scriptures, off the page. In verse 49, it says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had what? Had pride. Pride. Isn't that incredible? When it speaks of Sodom... The very word that the Bible uses to describe Sodom, the very first word, is pride. Fullness of food and abundance of idleness. And that's our world. We have more than enough to eat and plenty of time on our hands for entertainment, what have you, and lots of pride. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Speaks over here in verse 56, your sister Sodom was not a byword uh, in your mouth in the days of your pride. You see, that's one of the hallmarks of that particular lifestyle. But, you know, it's becoming, it's coming to the place where we cannot speak openly about that subject. Already, one particular scripture in the Bible has been ruled by Supreme Court of British Columbia that that particular verse and parts of the Bible can be considered hate literature. And that's why we have to be careful with what we say when we uh, refer to various scriptures, because you don't have to quote it. All you have to do is just refer to it. Back in Leviticus, I will, you can find it in the 20th chapter, but uh, let's look at Leviticus 18. You know, Leviticus 18 speaks of the nation of Israel coming into the promised land, and it lists one after another of lifestyles, of choices, frankly, just to put it bluntly, of particular sins involving human beings in relationship to sex. I was trying to figure a way to say that without using that word, but I guess there's no way to avoid it. Because, you see, it involves men and men and women and women and incest, family members, and beasts with human beings. And then in verse 19, or verse, uh, let's start in verse 20, Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife, adultery, uh, 
Uh, verse 21, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the eternal. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. We can say that. We can't say what's spoken of in the 20th chapter. It says, nor shall you mate with any animal. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal. Verse 24, do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. That's what God said would happen. He says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done, all the abominations that we read of there in the 18th chapter that says they have done, who are before you, and thus the land is defiled. He says, don't do it, verse 28, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commits them shall be cut off from among their people. Now, it, it lists adultery, it lists fornication, it lists incest, it lists all these as abominations. And he says that they should be cut off from before him. In Luke, the 21st chapter, Luke 21 Connecting a few dots here. And verse 12, the Olivet Prophecy, Luke's account of it. Luke 21, 12 says, But before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. This was a passage of Scripture that I know personally I could not imagine how it could come to pass 25, 30, 40, 45 years ago when God began to work with me. I could not imagine in the United States of America, in Canada, in England where I'd lived for a couple of years growing up, our Western nations, how in the world could they be so angry with us to haul us before magistrates and judges and so forth? It, it did not. I mean, I knew that the Scripture was right, but I could not imagine somebody saying, eat that pig or you're going to court. In fact, most of the decisions in, in the courts were allowing for greater freedom of religion in the context of the Sabbath, we had certain legal rights for the Sabbath. It's hard to imagine our Western nations saying that you, uh, you, you uh, would go to jail or you'd be called into question because of the Sabbath. You might not have a job. Uh, it might affect your job, but there were still plenty of jobs around. But to comprehend how is it that we were going to be brought before kings and rulers and magistrates, judges, so forth, be put in prison. He says, verse 13, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. 
Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And it says, You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. What is it that would bring us to the point of people hating us so badly that this picture could emerge? And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Are we going to be hated by all because we don't eat unclean meats? If anything, we have more and more vegans, vegetarians, and other people like that that don't eat those things. In Canada, we have lots of Muslims who don't eat pork. Um, What is it? that God is talking about here that would bring us into conflict with authorities. Well, I think we can begin to see if we look at what's happening around us, we can connect the dots to see that preaching the truth, preaching morality, preaching against the sins of this world will definitely bring us into conflict. Can we connect the dots and see that? Now, some don't seem to be able to connect dots. In Dr. Meredith's sermon on the last great day, he admonished us not to go back home and sit in front of the television. I wonder how many of us have heeded that admonition. He was pointing out that times are getting serious. It's time for us to get serious because there are things that are going to be happening before too long on this earth that... uh, are going to cause problems for us, and we're going to have to be close to God. We have this swine flu. Political correctness wants to change it to H1N1. They don't want to call it what it is. Um, We have to change it. We don't want anybody to think badly of pigs and start slaughtering pigs or stop eating them more properly because then that would be an economic disaster to the farmers that raise them. But there are other things. Just in one of the announcements here today about someone with a, a staph infection, a antibiotic-resistant staph infection. We've seen some of those up in, in Canada here. We had a young lady who was quite uh, ill with one of those and could have lost her life, uh, but was able to come through it. We're very thankful for that. And, and God clearly intervened on two or three occasions with her. I remember some years ago reading about these staph-resistant infections in a place called Toronto. That was probably about a dozen years ago. And I thought, well, that's up there. That won't affect me, because I was down in Kansas City at the time. Now I'm up there where where they have those things, you know? Up where SARS killed quite a few people, and 10,000 people were on quarantine. That's how they finally got it under control. They followed God's law of quarantine, among other things. In the book of Revelation, we want to get the big picture, so we want to connect some dots here. And any one of these dots by themselves may not tell us very much. If you just have one dot on the page, in fact, if you just have two and you connect those two dots, you have a straight line, but it doesn't give you much of a picture. But when we look at the end of the age 
and we connect all the dots, we should get a picture. In Revelation 3, in verse 14, we talk about this a great deal. Many sermonettes have been given on it. Many sermons have referred to it. It says, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, that's been analyzed backward and forward in every which way that you can possibly analyze that, I suppose. But neither cold nor hot. What about those people who have one foot in the church and one foot in the world? Is that not kind of being hot and cold? Uh, I think oftentimes when we read this, we think that, oh, this person's on fire. He's enthusiastic. He, he uh, prays a lot and everything. Well, that's, that's, that's good and that's right. But I know people in other groups that uh, certainly do that. They, they pray regularly. They study regularly. But what if we have one foot in the world and one foot in the church? Maybe we're not all the way in the world, but we just dabble in it. Maybe we just like its entertainment, whatever it is. When you think about those things, he says, so then because you are lukewarm, you're not really totally with it, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. There we have that again. But this time, Christ is saying he will vomit us out of his mouth. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. We, we are in such a blessed world today, physically speaking. And do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The person doesn't see his condition. Brethren, do we? Do we see that at the end of the age, when the world is ready to blow apart, God describes the condition of the majority of the church as being lukewarm? You know, that doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense in the sense that if you, if you look at the big picture, it shouldn't be that way. You would think that as you get close to the end, people would really get excited. But instead, God says that this last era of the church is lukewarm, apathetic, hard to be moved. And it's more and more difficult, it seems, for people to, to get motivated. In the last two months, I know of about nine or ten baptized members of the Church of God who have violated some of the principles in the 18th chapter of Leviticus. And I'm just one minister. And I don't know all that goes on in this world. It's frightening. At a time when you would think that people would really get serious they're living in the world. They're following the course of this world instead of following God's laws and God's ways. We're clearly living in a lukewarm age, an age of apathy. And this apathetic age, in this apathetic age, many cannot connect the dots even of where God is working. This past year, we had 15 Tomorrow's World Bible Lectures in Canada. We also have quite a steady stream of go-tos, individuals who want to know about the church. Maybe baptism or 
attending services. And what I hear from virtually all of our ministers there, and I hear it from ministers down here, that someone will call up and they'll be really enthusiastic. They want to come to services, and you give them the information, you talk to them, you find out enough that you, you're kind of assured that they're not some weirdo. And so you give them that information, and they don't show up. So you call them up and ask them if they had any trouble finding the place. Oh, no, but something came up, and they, they, they couldn't make it. But, boy, I'm sure going to be there this next week. And next week comes along, and, and you're absolutely convinced, boy, this person is really going to come there. But the back of your mind says, I've heard this before many times. And you say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. And sure enough, they don't show up. And you might call them up again and just make sure that everything's okay. And, and uh, oh, yeah, they're going to be there this next week. And the third week comes and goes, and they're not there. And you're just a little bit ashamed to call them up again. You don't want to bug them, bother them, and you never see them. That's the way it is in the world. Now, when we meet these people sometimes at these Tomorrow's World Bible Lectures, they are very enthusiastic. Oh, that was a wonderful lecture. I really appreciated that. I love the Tomorrow's World broadcast. Your literature has taught me so much. And then the next thing you know, they're talking about Jack Van Impey and other people and all these other individuals, and, and you're sitting there scratching your head figuratively saying, can this person not connect the dots? We visit people sometimes, and they'll have all their booklets out there, and we'll see Satan's counterfeit Christianity and restoring apostolic Christianity, and you ask them about it. Well, a lot of times they haven't read it, but if they've read it, oh, they're enthusiastic. Wow, that was a fantastic booklet. I really appreciated that, and you know that that Dr. Meredith, he needs he, he knows how to tell it like it is. And others speak of the other presenters and how they appreciate them. But they've read Satan's counterfeit Christianity or restoring apostolic Christianity, and then they start talking about other ministers, and and you realize they're religious hobbyists. They cannot connect the dots between what we teach and what the others teach. They can't figure out that Satan's counterfeit Christianity is what they spend half their day watching on vision. Because that's what it's all about. Vision is religious broadcasting. It's sad that so many of our viewers are not able to connect the dots. They have the facts before them. They see what we teach. And what we teach is radically different from what others teach. But somehow... They just think we're all wonderful, preaching the same gospel. And Isaiah, the 8th chapter, Isaiah 8, and verse 19, says, When they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Why would they go to someone who's going to call up the dead, so uh, at least that's what they, they claim, to find out about the living. But notice verse 20, to the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now notice it doesn't say there's no truth in them. It says there is no light in them. Because there may be a, an element of truth 
when you watch some of these other programs, they may have some things that are true. But in the end, they're not going to lead you into light. They're going to lead you into darkness because they're going to have a certain amount of error amongst them. So they have a mixture of truth and error. And that's not a very good thing because you take a glass of, of pure water, wonderful, clean, delicious, refreshing water, and you put a few drops of strychnine or cyanide or some poison in it, and it'll kill you. And that's the way it is about a lot of these religions out there. Oh, they have wonderful choirs, beautiful music. They've got uh, even the Bible that they're quoting from occasionally, telling it like it is supposedly. But they don't speak according to this word. They don't speak according to the law and the testimony. And that's a poison that is going to affect the minds of people. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul is talking to the people of Corinth. And there's really a message in it for us because it isn't just the outsiders who can't see these things. What I find is that it's sad when an outsider watches our program and can't connect the dots, but what's tragic is that some of our members don't seem to be able to connect the dots because some of our members spend a lot of time watching all these other religious broadcasters. And that's where it becomes very tragic. But that's not new because notice what Paul told the Corinthians. He says, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus, this is Second Corinthians 11, verse 4, whom you have not preached. Now they're preaching a Jesus that did away with his father's law. They're preaching about a sentimental, sanctimonious Jesus with long hair who carries little lambs underneath his arm and always has a sad look on his face. For if he who preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, and there is a different spirit there, or a different gospel, and definitely they do not understand the kingdom of God. They may understand part of the gospel about death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that certainly is a part of it. But to understand the kingdom of God, they do not. So they come with a different gospel, a different approach to it entirely, which you have not accepted. He says, you may well put up with it. You may well put up with it. Well, we have people not only put up with it, but actually go out and look for it. You know, this is a poison. It's not going to do us any good to sit around and watch all kinds of other religions for inspiration. Now, you know, there are times when um, I used to get in the car sometimes and we'd be going to some sort of activity and maybe there'd be two or three teen teenagers with us and I'd turn on the radio on Sunday morning. I'd say, I'd like to give you 20 proofs that we have the truth. And I'd turn and we'd hear some preacher out there. And I said, that's proof number one. You know, they're screaming and they're hollering and they're doing all the things and then turn at the next one. Well, there's proof number two. And you go through there. After three or four, they kind of get the picture. But I don't know about you, and I look at some of these people out there on television, they 
you know, when I was a child, when I was young, they looked like phonies. And they still look like phonies. They put on all this sort of stuff, the way that they talk, they, they, they affect their voice in a certain way, and they hold their hands. And I remember a funeral that I, I had to endure for a man who was 102 when he died. He was a member of the church, and, and the family had gotten this minister, and he, he, he'd put his hands a certain way, and he'd walk around, and he would come out from behind the lectern, and, and you just want to get sick. <laughs> because this is not the way a normal person acts. But they do that to make themselves look religious. It reminds you of the prophets of Baal and all the things that we read of there. They have their ways of doing it. Now they're deceived, and we understand that. And in the white throne judgment period, it describes in the 13th chapter of Zechariah that, uh, you know, some of them will come to repentance slowly. They'll still be saved. They'll, they'll come to the place where they say, well, look, I, I, was, I was a farmer. I wasn't a preacher. It's still lying, but uh, they'll, they'll get through to them. But not all of those people understand that they're deceivers. You know, sometimes we can be very hard on them, and, and uh, you know, the Scripture is pretty hard on them too, but there are those individuals who really do try as much as they know how to do what's right. So, you know, we've got to keep balance in that. But over here in verse 13, it says, For such are false apostles, Deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Paul wasn't too politically correct here. He says, No wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore is no great thing of his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You know what that's saying? It's saying that Satan has his ministry. But people seem to think that, well, Satan's ministry must be out there you know, promoting Satan directly. Back in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, Paul talked to the Corinthians because they were wrapped up in this world and all the idolatry that was around them. And it, it was sometimes hard to come out of that because their parties and their banquets and everything that they had involved meets to offer the idols. And oftentimes the banquets would be in the temples themselves. They actually had rooms where they could have these banquets there. And so he says in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So he asks these questions. He says, what am I saying? That an idol is anything or that, or what is offered to an idol is anything? Verse 20. He says, rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Are we stronger than he? Second uh, John, the 10th chapter, tells us one of those memorization scriptures we used to have in college. 
says, If anyone comes to you, 2 John 10, and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him will share in his evil deeds. So why do we invite these people into our home through television? I'm not talking about the person who may be educating his child on the way other people do things or whatever. I'm talking about those who they get inspiration from it. They think that, well, we're kind of all the same in that way. Oh, I, I really love this work, but this other person I really get inspiration from. Inspiration with a little dose of strychnine as well. In Revelation, the 17th chapter, I sometimes read this to some people when we're on a new visit, uh, and you realize where things are and what's going on. You don't always hit somebody with this on the first visit, but there are times when you, you have to bring this out. You try to wake somebody up. We have this great whore of, that uh, sits on many waters, and you ask people, now, who is that talking about? And some have no idea, and others say, oh, that's, that's the Catholic Church. And then you get down to verse 5, and you read this, and, on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And you ask what that means. And, and they don't seem to be able to connect the dots. You see, if you have this mother of harlots, the question that we usually put to them is, who are the daughters? If we've identified the mother, who are the daughters? It's amazing how many people cannot make that connection. They can't bring themselves to make that connection. And I think it's partly because it's difficult for us to come to believe that everything that we have believed in the past, the very people that we've looked to in the past could actually be harlot daughters of the great whore, could be ministers of Satan. It's hard for us to come to that. I know that personally, when I first started attending services, I thought that one particular evangelist I won't name, I thought, well, he, he's really a, a good man. I couldn't come to realize that he was a deceiver. I think he probably still is. Uh, he's still alive, uh, quite elderly, but I think in many ways he was a very moral individual. I think he probably thought he was doing the best he could with what he had, you know. He understood Sabbath, I think, but knew that he wouldn't have much of a following if he, if he uh, changed days. But I couldn't bring myself to realize that he could be an instrument of Satan. And when we're new, it's sometimes hard to comprehend that. It takes time to be able to have that sink in. But we have too many people who've been around for even a couple of years or so and who just can't quite get the picture. In Ezekiel, the second chapter, the church is told a group of people, a, uh, an end-time Ezekiel, because Ezekiel was never able to get the message to the house of Israel that they were going to captivity because they were already in captivity, and so it was left for another to do that. But in verse 3, this... Uh, in this vision, it says, He said to me, 
Ezekiel 2, verse 3, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. Our nation has rebelled against God. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. For they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the eternal God. As for them, whether they will hear or whether they will refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. We may never get that big. Because what I see, at least from where I, my vantage point in Canada, yes, we have growth. We've had steady growth, slow. But there are more people being born than are coming into the church percentage-wise. Uh, we, we, we keep falling backward in that sense. As Mr. Meredith has said, we're like the quarter of a peanut shell in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We're tiny. But there has to be a warning that goes out. He says, You, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words, or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or they refuse, for they are rebellious. I mean, how many times do you have to make the point? He says, You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. Verse 8, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what, you, uh, what I give you. And when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll, and he eats a scroll, and as he eats it, he finds it is um, uh, this one where it's sweet in the mouth, I forget now, um, but anyway, and, and bitter in the belly. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 3, he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel, that's our people, and speak with my words to them. For you're not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. And then we could read Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter, the first uh, six, seven, eight verses, where he says, You, son of man, are a, uh, a watchman to the house of Israel. That's our job. That is our job. Do, you know, do our people understand, do all of us understand that we have a job to do, that this is not a social club that God has called us to? Because, you see, many people in the Church of God, the broader Church of God, are content in a little social club, a little group, um, with their little website that they've come up with without preaching the word powerfully to this world. Not wanting to be a part of something where we're getting out there and preaching it. Now, as time goes by, whoever is preaching that word, or as it says in Isaiah 58, to cry aloud and spare not, and to lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. As we do that, we are going to come into conflict with this world. And, I, you know, I'm beginning to see it there in Canada very clearly that there are issues that we're, we're being put into a little box more and more. It's okay if you believe these things, but you're not allowed to say it. Whether it has to do with same-sex marriage or homosexuality or even who Israel is. 
you begin to believe that, that that's going to be an issue someplace down the road. Talking with Mr. King earlier today and the uh, with the Lisbon Treaty now being signed, and he's got a book that's quite thick with all the regulations there and where it's going and how Sunday is already uh, you know, in, in their regulations, that is the day, a day of rest that under health and safety that you should only work six days a week. Uh, you, you can see these things coming. I begin to wonder, too, about all the, the climate change and what's going to happen there and how uh, it may be politically correct to save the planet to take one day off, shut all industry down. And the way that the Europeans are working, if you do not comply with their regulations, neither can you do business with them. My brother-in-law even told me that. They have very strict regulations, and you have to meet those regulations, and if you don't meet them, you don't do business with them. And how, as they become increasingly more powerful, that's going to spread out. And then their ideas and their views on all these things will certainly have their impact. Here's an interesting article that is in, uh, where'd it go, uh, lifesitenews.com. This is October 16th of this year. To show you the direction things are going in, in Canada, Edmonton, Alberta, the Alberta Human Rights Commission has accepted a complaint brought against an Edmonton-area Catholic school board by a substitute teacher who was let go after she announced that she was becoming a man. Now, a human rights commission has tremendous power in Canada. Uh, each province has its own human rights commission, and then there's a federal commission. And here's what happens. You say something that offends somebody, and they file a complaint with the Human Rights Commission. The Human Rights Commission looks over that. If they think that there's some merit to it, then they put you before a tribunal. In that tribunal, if you are a white male, you will be guilty 100% of the time. In fact, Mark Stein, who writes for McLean's Magazine, was sued, he and another individual, Oh, well, the magazine was sued, and Mark Stein was sued because he quoted a piece of fiction that offended an individual who said, I'm a Muslim. Well, he didn't say, I'm a Muslim. He says, I find that offensive to Muslims. You see, this individual used to work for the commission, and now he goes around, and he sues on behalf of others, but it's always a white male, and once you get there, you will be guilty. Uh, that, I say 100%. There, actually, there was a recent case where somebody finally beat him. But as, as Mark Stein said, even under Saddam Hussein's regime, they would occasionally let somebody be not guilty, at least to make it look like it was a fair hearing, but not in the Human Rights Commissions and Tribunals in Canada. Uh, so whether it be Islam whether it be same-sex marriage, whether it be some other issue, we don't know what the issues, well, we know some of the issues, but whatever the issues are, we know that we're more and more boxed in, and they're telling us what we can say and what we can't say. And that's the direction this world is going. And with a work that is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, proclaiming it, 
and telling our peoples their sins, how long do you think it is going to be before we finally come before one of those commissions, before we finally find ourselves on the hot seat? We live in an age that is unable to connect the dots in a whole host of areas. Political correctness is an oppressive form of censorship. All we have to do is look back at the Fort Hood uh, shootings and realize that immediately this is post-traumatic stress syndrome. But when all kinds of interesting facts started to come out about this man's background, then it's, oh, we must not prejudge. Well, it was okay to prejudge that it was post-traumatic stress syndrome but not prejudge that, oh, wow, this man might have been working for Al-Qaeda or an Al-Qaeda operative or whatever it might be, even though he's had contacts with them and he has this business card where, you know, Army of Allah or whatever it is that it stands for, and some of the things are beginning to come out there. But no, no, it, 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 it certainly couldn't be a terrorist act. In fact, immediately, all oh, this isn't a terrorist act. You see, there is an agenda out here that is defining what you can say and what you can't say. And the box is getting squeezed tighter and tighter. Those who preach the truth will be brought before courts and tribunals. Brethren, we're far further along than we might ever imagine, coming close to that time. And it would do us well if in the way that we live our lives, we live them as though we are able to connect the dots.